So if you have your scriptures, I encourage you to turn over in them. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 7. I am actually going to back up and do the two verses ending chapter 6, and you'll understand why a little bit later. But Hebrews chapter 6, starting at verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their own brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them, he received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal man, but in the other, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who paid tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Now I promised you we'd get to Melchizedek, and we're actually going to take two weeks to get through it. Uh, it's that much to be done with this. And as we've worked our way through the book of Hebrews, if you think about it, we've actually come across Melchizedek three previous times, back in 5.6, 5.10, and 6.20. Now, do you remember the theme of Hebrews? Jesus is better. Good. Okay. Well, guess what? What we are being shown today in Melchizedek is a figure who prefigures Christ, and it is his very presentation that reminds us and shows us, and the author is seeking to prove, this is one of the reasons that Jesus Christ is your priest is way better. You don't need an earthly priest. You need a heavenly priest, and Melchizedek is that prefigure. Notice what he shows us. Verse 11, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? My earthly priest, you had to do it every year and continue to keep coming back on a regular basis. 
So as we jump into this, allow me to warn you. Chapter 7, it's a demanding chapter. It's a fascinating chapter. It's quite challenging because you're not a first century Jew. You didn't grow up with the sacrificial system. So some of the things I will need to explain to you so you can go, oh, I get it now. In other words, you have to do a cultural and ethical adjustment to be able to grab a hold of some of the words. But remember, these were written to first century Jewish believers. And in fact, quite frankly, if a modern theologian were seeking to teach the same truths as this pastor, I really think he'd do it differently. I'm not dinging the inspiration of Scripture. He was speaking to an audience and a very specific audience. But if we wrote that today, it is unlikely that a modern theologian would come at these concepts in the same way. But we'll make that adjustment. We'll help understand the cultural adjustments. And I think it is important also for us to realize that the reason for his approach is he was addressing first century Jewish believers who had come out of the system of regular sacrifice, the annual presentation of the great high priest on the Day of Atonement where all of the people of God would wait to see if it was accepted. And for lack of a better term, they were covered for another year. And that was a regular part of their life. And the feasts and the festivals, it was all a part of their life. And yet now these believers, as we've already seen in the book of Hebrews, they're facing some unique challenges. They've left the Jewish system. They have become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And suddenly they're being persecuted. They're losing jobs. They're losing homes. They're being outcast within their community. And so our pastor is going, okay guys, I know you're losing stuff for Jesus, but here's why. Jesus is better and you need to stick with this. Don't go back to what you know. It's not going to help. Your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the perfect high priest that you need. So as we start, let's ask this question. Who was Melchizedek? He's a mysterious figure. And as you read the commentaries, oh boy, you get some interesting answers. Some have said Melchizedek was an angel. Others have suggested that Melchizedek was a personification of the third person of the Trinity, in other words, the Holy Spirit. No, don't like that one. Others have said that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Maybe there was some merit on that. I still don't like that one. I don't agree with any of those ideas that they've put forth. And what I'll share with you this morning is that I believe that Melchizedek was a real historical figure as presented in Scripture. But he is presented to us not with dates and times, but as a type. He is a type of Christ. He is pre-shadowing, he is prefiguring the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what you find in the Old Testament are all these different foreshadowings of things to come. Most of you, if you've been around the church for a while, you understand that. Some of you may go, well, what is a type? I think perhaps probably the best definition I can say is it is a prophetic symbol to represent something in the future. 
Let me give you an example. Most of you are familiar Numbers chapter 21. Remember when the people of God, the Israelites, were in the wilderness, and once again they're grumbling. Numbers 21, chapter 4, verse, or 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. God's people never do that, right? No, we always get impatient, don't we? And once again, that's what God's people were doing. And the people then spoke against God and then against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there's no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food, the blessings of manna. Just like us, huh? Whining and complaining about the good things God is giving us. Verse 6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Verse 9, so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he could look at the bronze serpent and live. So we have this miracle of simply looking up to what is raised on the pole. Now that serpent on a pole is a type of Christ in the Old Testament. You go, are you sure? Well, Jesus was sure. If you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, verse 14, what you'll find is Jesus actually tells us that this is a type of him. It is prefiguring what he will do on the cross. John 3, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. Do you see the picture? The people of the Old Covenant we're given a picture that when you look to what is raised up on the pole, you can have salvation. Very murky and dark picture, isn't it? But yet, when we look back, we see, wow, that was showing us our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who redeemed us by going to the cross and becoming sin for us. And so Jesus applies that Old Testament picture as a type for His coming. You can find it all through Scripture. Types. Example, Exodus chapter 12. Remember the Passover lamb? And then John the Baptist, what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we see the Passover lamb is a type of Jesus Christ who was the ultimate sacrifice once for all. And so what our pastor is doing is... He is presenting this picture of Melchizedek, and he is showing Melchizedek as a type of Jesus Christ. Now, in the book of Hebrews, he mentioned in chapter 5, verse 6, and he quotes Psalm 110, Hebrews 5, 6, as he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And also again, in Hebrews 5, 9, and being made perfect, he, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we keep seeing this connection between Jesus and Melchizedek. 
And he gave these two references to Melchizedek. And then we spent the past couple of weeks because, quite frankly, what it seems like the pastor was building up and he was about ready to go into the theology of Melchizedek. And then he was thinking to himself, you know my people aren't ready for it. You remember the past couple of weeks what we've dealt with? He had that whole section. Look at verse 11 of chapter 5. About this we have much to say. He wanted to say a lot about Melchizedek, but he couldn't. Why? It's hard to explain it to you, since you guys are dull of hearing. You see how the pastor is backed off? And that's why we've spent these past few weeks looking at these exhortations and encouragements. And so he started to mention Melchizedek, he backed off, and he gave us the addressing of, they were spiritual infants, 512. They were in danger of apostasy, 6-6. And so, lastly, he then gave them an encouragement. And that's why I started this morning with the last two verses of chapter 6. Notice how he finishes that exhortation and encouragement. Verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so basically what he's doing is he's pointing us back to the argument that he originally had. He sort of took a rabbit trail, and he's brought us back to Melchizedek. And that's why chapter 7 dives in headfirst deep into Melchizedek. And so we read in the first three verses, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of name. He's the king of righteousness, and then he's also the king of Salem. That is, the king of peace. And then, this is where people make all these crazy ideas of who Melchizedek is. Because notice what he says in verse 3. He's without father or mother or genealogy. That's why you get ideas of, well, he's a pre-incarnate Christ. He's an angel. See, he doesn't have father or mother or genealogy. No, I think what the author is doing, as we will see, is showing us that none of this is recorded about Melchizedek because this relates to his role as a type of Christ. But more on that in just a moment. Now think about when we see Melchizedek mentioned in God's word from beginning to end. This is a wonderful proof for the inspiration of Scripture. Isn't it funny how something like Melchizedek can authenticate God's word as being God's word? And you go, what do you mean? Well, Genesis. When was it written? Hmm? Probably by Moses. And so then, the next occurrence, we saw the reference to Melchizedek in Genesis. The next occurrence is Psalm 110, verse 4. Who wrote that? It's a Psalm of David, if you look it up. That's a thousand, you know, I'm using very broad figures, but over a thousand years later, David references. And now here we are, at this point, the author of Hebrews is once again mentioning Melchizedek, another thousand years later. Why would you have this crazy, bizarre, obscure figure of history who is mentioned over thousands of years? Because it's the unfolding thread of redemption. God has inspired his word, and he gives a a, a rough glimpse in Genesis. 
And then in Psalm 110, David is showing forth that there will come a priest who's in the order of Melchizedek. And then the author of Hebrews says, oh, he came, by the way, it's Jesus Christ. And, and Genesis talked about him, and David talked about him, and that this was him. Do you see how that picture? But that should help you understand that God's word is to be trusted and true. It wasn't conspired by a bunch of people who got together and tried to pull it together. There's no way they could pull all these pieces. Isn't our God amazing? As Paul writes, all scripture is God-breathed. Amazing, that truth. So, our pastor told us in 620 that Jesus has become, or has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Notice that he's comparing Jesus. He's not saying Jesus is Melchizedek. Jesus is shown to be better than any of the Aaronic or Levitical priests who had come before. And the other thing that we're told early on in that passage of chapter 7 is what? Melchizedek was referred to as king of Salem. That's another word for early Jerusalem. And king of peace is literally what it means. And so Melchizedek was a historical figure. He was indeed a king of that region. We also see that Melchizedek is called a king of righteousness. By his life, remember, you're back the time where Abraham is paying tithes to Melchizedek. But the integrity of Melchizedek's life in his reign as the king of Salem was enough that he was a priest, that people would come to him to be able to connect with God. He was preaching the good news even at that point. And that seems to be that he was a historical figure in that line. But then we come to that verse 3 where it says, He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. I don't believe that means that Melchizedek just sort of poofed in and poofed out, that he didn't have a birth and he didn't have a death. Now, Melchizedek was a human like you and I. And all of us in this room, we were born, weren't we? And unless Christ returns, amen, let's hope he does, we're going to die. And that will be our exit from this world. And that's what happened with Melchizedek. But we don't find those things recorded, which is quite abnormal for the Old Testament. Most of the time we're given when they are born, when they die, these types of things. But these things are not recorded by God's plan because Melchizedek needed to prefigure Christ. He has an agenda in saying he doesn't have a beginning, he doesn't have an end, he doesn't have any of these things because Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He's prefiguring the coming Messiah, the second person of the Trinity. And so, if you remember, the Levitical priesthood was only entered how? You had to have the right genealogy. You had to be a son of Aaron and a son of Levi in order to serve as a priest. And in fact, you had to have a very specific mother 
in your genealogy. If you don't believe me, go look at Leviticus 21 and Ezekiel 44, 22. It speaks about the qualification of a priest mother in order for that priest to serve. God was very specific on the genealogy that only certain people could serve. And in fact, you want to know how serious that genealogy issue was? Remember Ezra and Nehemiah? God has exiled his people out to Babylon and they're now returning. You'll find in both the book of Ezra, chapter 2, verse 62, and the book of Nehemiah, chapter 7, verse 64, that as the exiles returned, there were many Levitical priests returning with them. But as typically happens in wartime situation, some lost their birth certificate. And they were no longer qualified because they could not prove their genealogy. They could not serve in the temple. They could not serve as a Levitical priest. Nehemiah 7.64 puts it this way. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. They were disqualified because they could not prove their genealogy. Isn't that amazing? But remember, those are priests under the law. And God cared very specifically that the law was followed and these things carried out. But Melchizedek prefigures these. And that's one of the reasons I believe that our pastor in Hebrews is referencing and saying, Melchizedek didn't have a beginning or end. You can't find it in Scripture. God's unfolding thread of redemption, Melchizedek is prefiguring Christ. He's the type of the one who was to fill the ultimate priesthood. And the ultimate great high priest, Jesus Christ, had nothing to do with genealogy. And Christ today is still our priest, isn't he? He is an eternal priest. There's one other thing that we can only deduce from the silence of Scripture. In other words, in what it doesn't say. We know from Scripture that Levitical priests could only serve, you can look at this, Numbers 4, Numbers 8. They could serve beginning at the age 25, but from 25 to 30, they could only do very limited duties. They could not serve the people except between the ages of 30 and 50. And then they had to retire. Their work was done and gone. They were pushed out. And so a very limited amount of time, a very specific time frame. And so the idea of a permanent priesthood, or a priesthood that does not end under the Levitical law, completely foreign. Because the priest had to continually be changed out. Because they can serve 20 years max. And so when Melchizedek appears in scriptures as if from nowhere, not that he didn't appear from nowhere, but it's not told, Melchizedek is presented to us with no genealogy. Genesis, you won't find it. And we never find what happens to Melchizedek. Implication, his priesthood goes on forever. It's pre-shadowing Jesus Christ. If you remember, Jesus descended from the tribe of Judah. They can't serve as priests, can they? But Jesus is the great high priest. And the point being, his genealogy doesn't matter. 
What mattered for Jesus? It was the eternal dignity of his sonship. It was his holiness. God become flesh who was without sin. That's why Jesus could serve as a perfect high priest. The Levitical priest, what did he have to do before he went for the day of atonement? He had to go and sacrifice for his sins before he could go and sacrifice for the sins of the people. But with Jesus, that was not necessary. It was his eternal holiness that made him qualified. And so now our author picks up in verses 4 through 10, and we hear arguments that get even more complicated for us to understand. Because what basically he is doing is saying, Jesus is better than the priesthood under the law. Because those descended from Aaron and Levi, they were under the law. Notice what he says in verse 4. See how great this man who was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. So he's saying, remember back in Genesis? Abraham fought this battle, and he comes and he offers a tenth of the booty to the priest, Melchizedek. He tithes to this man. And so literally what he is saying is, Abraham gave his tithes to Melchizedek. Now, every good Jew, and see, you wouldn't understand this because you're not a practicing Jew. Every Jew understood that the Levitical priesthood, by law, collected a tenth from the people. The Levitical priests were sustained by the tithes of the people. And so when we are shown that Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham, the Jewish father, what's that prove to a Jew? The Jewish mind says, whoa, Melchizedek must be somebody special. He is receiving tithes from Abraham, our father. Oh, yeah, and where was Levi at the time? He was still in the loins of Abraham. You see, he's a descendant. And so this is the picture that he is laying forth. Notice in verse 7 what he says. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Now, who's the inferior and superior? Abraham is the inferior one. He's the one paying tithes to Melchizedek, the superior one. And so our pastor is going, because of Jesus Christ, you don't have to worry about Abraham and the Levitical system anymore. He's done it all. He's way better than any of that system. And Melchizedek, this story that's recorded by Moses for us in Genesis, is to show us Notice verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. And so he's saying, don't keep looking back to Abraham. Don't keep looking back to the earthly priest. Look to Jesus Christ. Because Melchizedek prefigures him. Notice in verse 8, he says, that the tithes under the Levitical system were paid to what kind of men? Mortal men. Men who die, men who sin, men who have to atone for their, or sacrifice for their own sin before they can do it for the people. But Melchizedek shows up, he receives the tithes, he offers the sacrifices, and there's nothing said about his need. Now it's probably there, but it's not mentioned. It's the silence of Scripture. Now some of you are going, these are all technical details. Well, you're not a first century Jew. These would have been very important things to them. 
They had depended upon the ceremonial law. They had been raised in watching sacrifice on a regular basis, year after year, with all the celebrations that come. Go back and read your Old Testament, and you will see the patterns and the rituals and all of the regular things. And so they were steeped in this. And the struggle that these believers are having now as they go to Jesus Christ is they're like, well, we don't get to sacrifice anymore. We don't have all those guys with the fancy robes and the incense, and we don't have all of this mystery of, you know, behind the curtain and all that. And what's the pastor saying? Exactly. Because Jesus is better. You have in faith believed that Jesus made the once and for all atoning sacrifice for sin. He tore the curtain from top to bottom when Jesus was crucified. He has made it possible for you to enter into the Holy of Holies by His perfect work. You don't need all that other stuff. You catch the gist of the argument. And so when these seeds of doubt come up in the minds of these first century believers who were Jewish, they're going, maybe we should go back to the old way because that's why we're being persecuted. Notice the hints of what always comes in. We believe the health and wealth gospel. If I work really hard, God will bless me. No. You are blessed how? By the man on the middle cross. Because he laid down his life for us. He took the wrath, he drunk the cup, full to the dregs for our sins. How does Paul put it? Romans 8.1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. And so we are set free, and that's what the pastor is trying to show us. Jesus is this perfect high priest that we need. Notice what he says in verse 11. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise? You got Jesus. You don't need anything else. He's implying that the priesthood of Jesus Christ is far more significant and powerful than all of the Levitical priesthood that went on before. That was by the blood of bulls and goats. And we're going to see more of that mentioning in the rest of the book. Basically, our pastor is saying, I've shown you that Melchizedek was way bigger and way greater than Abraham or the Levitical priesthood that came out of Abraham. And Jesus is now our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so he has shown us this absolute sufficiency and the reality of Christ being our priest. He allows you access into the presence of God. Because here's the ultimate question. Think about the ultimate question of life. I would say it's probably along these lines. How do I, as a sinful man, or you as a sinful woman, draw near to God? That's the ultimate question. Because it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, face judgment. We're all going to have to deal with that issue. How do I draw near to God? How do I come before Him? The EE question. Why should I let you in my heaven? Well, if you went out on the streets and you asked, you'd get all kinds of answers. So you'd have some people, and some of the churches in this town even will say this, well, just be faithful. Go to church. Give your tithes. Do good, do good works to other people. <clears throat> Wrong answer. 
None of those things are right. All of our righteous acts are as filthy rags. Now, what our pastor is saying is, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood by the ritual and the works, it would have been, but it wasn't. That's why Jesus Christ had to come in the flesh. That's why God, before the foundation of the earth, planned to send Jesus to us. Praise God. And so the good news of the gospel is this. The entire Old Testament is pointing to Jesus Christ. It's pointing you and me and the people of the Old Covenant to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would redeem unto himself a people who would serve him. And that's why God sent Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, to be the perfect, pure, spotless, high priest who made that once-for-all atonement. He made that substitutionary sacrifice for us. He didn't need to do it for himself, did he? Because he was perfect and without sin. But he did that, and he is even today interceding for us. What an amazing truth. You see... The gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ is not an imitation for you to come and imitate Christ. Yes, we are to imitate Christ, but it's not, oh, be like Christ and if you're good enough, he'll let you in. Now, it is an invitation to rest in faith in what Christ has done on your behalf. It's what... Jesus Christ did for me. He went to the cross. He was crucified. He was buried and raised again. And so his record is mine. That's the gospel message. We need to helplessly rest upon his good deeds. Because Jesus is indeed the great high priest. Just like that thief on the middle cross. He didn't have time to do works. He didn't have time to study theology. He simply said, have mercy upon me. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. He depended completely upon Jesus. I hope you are here today and you are resting only in the work of Jesus on your behalf.